I grew up, probably how many of you did, going to camps and, and hearing those old revivalistic preachers. And one of the things they always would, would say is they would, would uh, elevate their voices there and the emotions that would cause great grief and problems for a 8, 9, 10, 12-year-old young man. They would begin to ask the question, do you know? Do you know that you know? Do you know that you know that you know that you know that you know? Right? And I'd be scared to death because I lost him after about the fourth or fifth no. Don't we all struggle with doubt at some level? But what do we do with that doubt? Thank goodness for Thomas in Scripture. Because his story is one that many of us can identify with as we travel this road of faith, and as we seek to know God in deeper and more intimate ways. You know, this summer we are, are, are going through the Scriptures and we're, we're stepping back and we're understanding our lives as a tapestry. A tapestry that we weave, certainly individually, but also as part of community, family, church, community, spiritual community. And we're taking time to look at the stories of Jesus, celebrating and recognizing that Jesus must be the central cord through which we weave our life's story. But also identifying with the, the characters of Scripture and of the New Testament like Thomas, in which we would identify with their own story and, and we would say, you know, that's a, that, that's a thread that also runs through the tapestry of my life. And so today, focus on Thomas and on his familiar story for many of us. But let me begin with, with my story. As we know, as we read Scripture, we, uh, we know that Thomas is a twin. Well, we have twins in our family. And I'll never forget that announcement that Gay and I received. Now, I believe that uh, uh, she was probably working and she had a, an appointment with the the doctor, we were about five months pregnant, and um, she was, I think it was during about, about lunch hour, and so we had arranged to, to make our schedule so that we could go and have the last appointment before lunch, and then uh, we'd go grab some lunch and then get back to work. And so we were the last ones in the doctor's office, and this is where I'll get in trouble at, at home, but, but you know, we, we'd already had a baby, and, and Gay was pregnant. And some people would say, well, you're only five months pregnant. And we, so we were kind of dealing with that, and so we go in, and the doctor, you know how doctors are, sometimes they don't tell you the whole story all along. And so we go in, and we were having this typical doctor's appointment, and, and he was doing all the things that doctors do at that time, and he said, you know what? He said, we've got a few minutes, let's just go back in the back. And he got the sonogram, he said, let's just go take some pictures and see what's going on. And so we went back, and into the doctor's office back where the sonogram was. And, of course, we're clueless. We're, we don't have any idea of what's going on. And, and so he begins to, to do the, the, the sonogram, and we begin to see this, this figure up on the, on the screen. It's, it was, you know, old school, so lots of dots and lots of gray, shades of gray. And we didn't really know what we were looking at, but he starts pointing things out. And he says, well, you know, look, here's, here's, here's a a head and, and, and a brain, and, and here's a heart, and well, you know what, there's another heart, and, and, and there's a couple of hands, and you know what, there's a couple more hands, and 
he kind of looked at us and we're kind of in shock trying to figure out what's going on. And he says, what do you think that means? <laughs> and, and I thought, well, we're having an alien or, or we're having twins. And so we got to celebrate at five months and begin at that point to prepare for twins. And we were in shock and we got to begin telling others. You know, in our culture today, to have twins, and we have other twins, we got to spend some time with the Molnaxes yesterday, and uh, we know there's other, some of you are twins, and, and there's twins are, are more common, multiple births be more common today, especially the, the survival rate of, of multiples. And so in our culture today, for the most part, twins are, are graciously received. Now again, in our family, Gay and I had this conversation going, I suggested we'd have two kids, she said, no, we'll have three, and and, of course, we had one and then twins, and so she won that argument. But uh, twins are received as a blessing. But that's not the way it's always been. And, and I can relate to that, too, because we got pregnant with Wilson, and Gay said, what do you want? And I said, one. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I can understand that. But, it, but in ancient times, in, in previous cultures, twins weren't always received as graciously, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But... But I want us to be introduced to Thomas's story. So turn with me in, in John chapter 20. This is the passage that we've already heard read today. And it's interesting that as we're introduced to Thomas, here in chapter 20, we're, we're going to look back at a couple of passages in John where we, we meet Thomas for the first time. But it's interesting that even here in this third time that John introduces us to Thomas, he begins this way, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus. The, the word Didymus means twin. And so Thomas was a twin, and it's interesting that he was called by that name. He was called Didymus. Now again, in the ancient world, there were, there were some cultures that regarded twins as a bad omen. Because in that time, there was often a high mortality rate associated with twins, for the mother and for the, the twins being born. But also, when twins were born, you had issues of inheritance, right? You had to split what, what was intended to be given to this son or that son, and so there became inheritance issues. And so twins were not looked upon favorably all the time. Now in Greek, in the Greek language, there's a connection between the word two, the number two, and the way that that's spelled, and, and the way that that word is, and with the words doubt or double. So the word to doubt literally means to be of two minds. And that's what we pick up in in James 1, chapter 6 through 8. Uh, I'm sorry, James 1, verses 6 through 8, when the scripture says, The one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, being a double minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So again, you see this idea of being double-minded as being that which is this person who's really unstable, they're uncertain, and therefore they can't make up their mind and they're tossed to and fro like, like the sea is during a storm. And so we see Thomas here in chapter 20, verses 24 through 25. He's introduced and then, it sa then he says, unless I see Jesus and unless I touch Jesus... I will not believe that He has been resurrected. Now, we don't know in, in the earlier verses here why Thomas wasn't present when 
all the other disciples were and, and why Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first appeared. But we know that, that he doubted the story of the other disciples. And he said, I'm not going to believe unless I can see and unless I can touch Jesus. He was double-minded. He doubted this story that the disciples were telling him. But as we look at the story of Thomas as told in John, I think this word Didymus means more than just twin. I think this word kind of refers to his struggle, his, his own nature, his own character. I've used this term before, but there's a, a term that some biblical scholars use called, called physiognomy. And what that means is that sometimes the physical descriptions that we see in Scripture represent the spiritual condition of the person as well. And, and it's possible that the reason that, that the two out of the three times that we see Thomas in the, in the Gospel of John and referred to as Didymus is because the, the writer is trying to help us understand that Thomas is not a twin, but, but this double-minded nature, this doubting nature is reflective of his own character and faith struggle. So let's, let's test that hypothesis and look at John chapter 11. Turn with me to John 11. Now this is the familiar story of, of Lazarus. And it's interesting that in chapter 10, as we finish the end of chapter 10, that Jesus has fled from Jerusalem. That, that he's finally, as his ministry is maturing and growing, the opposition is growing, it's becoming more and more um, uh, adversarial. Jesus makes some statements in, in chapter 10 that, that he's, he is God. And the Pharisees become very angry and they begin to threaten to, to kill him and to stone him. And, and the disciples are able, and Jesus are able to get out of Jerusalem. And so here we find ourselves in chapter 11, and they get word as they fled, as they're in the wilderness a, a little ways, that Lazarus, Jesus' good friend, is, is sick. And Jesus. And you can just kind of hear the disciples as they hear this and as they begin to think in their own mind, oh no, does that mean we're going to have to go back to, to Bethany in Jerusalem, which is right there together? And, and Jesus kind of says, no, we're not going to go back right now. And you can just kind of see the disciples go, wow, thank goodness. Well, a couple of days later, Jesus starts saying, we're, we're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to go to, to Bethany. We're going to go see Lazarus. And, and the disciples, as we continue to read in verse, chapter 11, the disciples say, well, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you. Are, are we going to go there again? Why, why would we go there? Let's wait till the, the temperature kind of drops. But let's not go back. Our, our lives would be in jeopardy. And the disciples, you can tell, begin to, to convince Jesus, or, Jesus, we can't go back. We can't go back to Jerusalem right now. We need to wait. Oh, Lazarus is okay. He's going to be fine. Jesus uses the term, Lazarus is asleep. Oh, Jesus, he's, he's asleep. He'll, he'll be fine. We don't need to rush back to Jerusalem. And finally, Jesus says, well, Lazarus is dead. And again, you can kind of see the disciples thinking, wow, he's, he's dead. That means we don't have to go, right? And they try to convince him not to go to Jerusalem. And finally, Jesus says, we're going. We're going back. And in verse 16, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. I think, again, this reflects this, this double-minded nature of Thomas. 
I suspect he was one of those disciples who was trying to convince Jesus, Jesus, let's not go. Let's not go. Lazarus is going to be okay. It's dangerous to go back to Jerusalem. And finally, once Thomas understands that, that Jesus is set to go back to Lazarus, you see how Thomas shifts, swings all the way to the other end and says, okay, we're just all going to go and die together then. You know people that, that struggle with that uncertainty, that double-mindedness, and, and they tend to be, they swing from one side to the next. They're, they're tossed to and fro. Now let's, let's pick up this next occasion in, in uh, John chapter 14. John chapter 14, again the disciples are, are visiting and, and talking, they're having this conversation with Jesus. Chapter 1 is this, this uh, chapter 14 verse 1 is this familiar passage, Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe it also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, and Thomas begins to be a little confused. And isn't it interesting here that Jesus says in verse 4, and you know, talking to His disciples, and you know the way, the way where I'm going? Men, this is what we've been talking about over these last years. You know this way. You know this direction. You, you know this way that we're headed and where I'm going. I'm going to prepare this place for you. And it's Thomas who comes back and says, well, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Again, it's Thomas who comes to, to, the, to the top of the, the, the disciples' list. And, well, we're not really certain about this. We're, we're confused. We, we kind of doubt what's going on here. So the three times we see Thomas in, in Scripture, I think he's reflecting this doubting nature, this double-minded nature that he has. So my question for us is, do you know Didymus? Does he live at your house? Are you Didymus? Are you one that struggles with being double-minded, of, of being unsure and unstable, tossed to and fro like the surf of the sea? And does this doubting nature, this double-mindedness that, that you struggle with, does it make you miserable? Does it rob you of the joy of life and of faith? And again, the question that we must ask is, is there any good news for all of us doubters? Is there hope for Didymus? So let, let's go to, back to chapter 20, John chapter 20, and pick up the rest of this story. It's eight days later in, in verse 26 that the Scripture tells us. Eight days later, they're all in the upper room. Thomas is with them this time. And Jesus comes into their midst. And listen to the first words that Jesus has to say. Peace. Peace be with you. What do the Thomases of the world need more than anything? Their minds struggling with doubt and, and, and double-mindedness and being tossed to and fro and struggling with uncertainty. What do the Thomases of the world need? Peace. Shalom. Shalom is this broader concept that says that, that, that everything is well with, with your person physically, emotionally, mentally. And I find it fascinating that in the midst of this story of of the one who's the double-minded, the doubter, in the midst of this story, the first thing that Jesus comes to offer is blessing 
to the disciples and to Thomas is peace. Shalom. How many of us need to hear that word for ourselves today? Jesus says peace and He he moves forward to Thomas and He says, Thomas, reach here with your finger and see My hands and reach here your hand and put it into My side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Here is what I believe the Spirit of God is saying to some of us today. Be believing, not unbelieving. Allow the Spirit of God, allow the Christ to bring shalom to your mind, to your emotions. Allow the Spirit of God to call you to see and to touch and to experience His peace. As we follow the end of this story, isn't it fascinating that Thomas says, he, he, he cries out, maybe he bows down in worship as he, his faith becomes sight, as, his, as he begins to believe, he cries out, my Lord and my God. Still statements of faith. But statements of faith now that Thomas can make with assurance and with conviction. You see, we must begin to, to struggle with this cord of faith as we deal with our doubts and our double-mindedness. So the question that I would have for us today is, how do you define faith? What is faith? Well, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, the writer of Hebrews simply defines faith as this. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. Now this definition of faith contrasts greatly to the definition of faith by Mark Twain who declared that faith is trying to believe what you know ain't so. But isn't that what the world, isn't that what a lot of us think? Is that somehow faith is convincing ourselves to believe something that we really know is not true? That was Twain's impression or or view of faith. But we all know, we all discover that willpower, that that making yourself believe something is not the pathway to faith. We all ultimately know that, that in and of ourselves, we can't make ourselves believe anything. Faith, rather, is the coming together of truth, of, of belief, with, with mystery, with trust. But because of the nature of faith in dealing with things hoped for, in dealing with things not seen, I believe that that faith's constant companion on this side of eternity for us us is doubt. So we must learn to, we must decide what we're going to do with our doubt. Are we going to be tossed to and fro, constantly troubled by our double-mindedness and our uncertainty? Or are we going to face our doubts and allow them to be a part of strengthening our faith. You see, one extreme of doubt is a spiraling out of control that leads us to death and condemnation. But another aspect of doubt is that which is used by God to lead us into deeper levels of faith and to lead us unto salvation as that faith grows. You see, we must learn to deal with our faith and to, excuse me, with our doubt and to embrace 
faith. And when we choose faith, we must learn to live by faith. John Ortberg, in his book, Faith and Doubt, talks a lot about what he calls the gift of uncertainty. In fact, he says that some people would be better believers if they had a little more doubt. Uncertainty, you see, is a condition of humility that recognizes our own finiteness and our own limitations to understand and to grasp at times truths that that we just struggle with. But you see, doubt causes us, when, when we embrace it in a healthy way, doubt can cause us to look inside and to be honest with ourselves. Doubt can cause us and push us to seek truth. As a result, doubt provides the opportunity for our faith to grow and to be strengthened. Frederick Buechner writes that doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep us awake and moving. So this morning, the choice is yours, is ours. We can allow our doubts to rob us of our joy and of our blessing Or we can allow our doubts to strengthen and grow our faith. You see, doubt's not the opposite of faith. It's the companion of faith. Satan, however, uses our faith to destroy us. God uses our doubt to bless and draw us closer to Him. Faith involves belief. But faith also involves trust. When our belief is weak, we have His Word and His people to teach and to strengthen us. But often, doubt is more an issue of trust and not believe. We believe, but we struggle to trust. We are double-minded being tossed to and fro because of our lack of trust, which causes doubt. We believe that God calls us to a life of honesty, but we lie and we cheat anyway. You see, this is a lack of trust, a lack of faith. Faith is incomplete if your belief does not lead you down a road of growing faith. It's interesting, the word trapeze. We know what a trapeze is, right? You, you get up way too high in the air and you swing on a bar and you let go and you pray somebody catches you. That fly followed me from down there, so you guys shoot it this way. Isn't that what a trapeze is? We love to see the trapeze artist at work, the the artistry, the beauty in which they engage, the danger in which they they take their risks. This word develops or is derived from the Greek word trapeza, which means table. It's interesting that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus gathers His disciples around the trapeza to share His last supper with them. If you'd allow me to explore this, he teaches them that in just a few hours that he will have to let go of his life for them on the cross. And so on the cross, I believe that Jesus lets go of his life with the exclamation, Father, why have you forsaken me? He lets go of his own life and he's swinging across eternity, swinging there above the cross with his arms Wide. You've forsaken me, Father. But in just a few hours, Jesus cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And in that moment, as Jesus has let go of His life here, and as He's hung on the cross, the Spirit of God, the Father, grabs a hold Him with both hands and welcomes Him, so to speak, to the other side. And He welcomes Him in His love and in His strength and in His healing power. And oh, what a beautiful picture that that offers us. You see, trust is letting go. In the midst of our doubts, we must trust Him. And we must let go and fly through the air. And because God is faithful, He grabs us and He secures us into His loving arms. Again, this is not a blind faith. This is not believing what you know ain't so faith. This is a faith that understands the truth of of God's Word, the truth of His Scripture, and through prayer and and through understanding the nature of God, says, God, I'm I'm really struggling with this, but I believe You're leading me in this direction. I believe You're calling me to surrender my life to You. So God, I'm going to let go of the trapeze. And while I'm here in the midst of of midair, I'm going to believe and trust that you're faithful. And that if I'll step out in faith, that you'll grab a hold of me. That you'll bring me safely to the other side. We need to let go of the trapeze and in the midst of our doubts and fears, have faith and believe that God will not forsake us. We need to let go of our sin. We need to let go of unhealthy relationships. We need to let go of our addictions, of our selfishness. We need to let go of our controlling natures. We need to let go of our idolatry. We need to let go of anything that hinders us from God. We need to let go of ourself. And let God catch us. Just as with Thomas, Jesus invites us to touch and to see His wounds. He invites us to believe in Him. Certainly this morning, we cannot touch Him like Thomas and the disciples did. But we can let go of the trapeze and by faith receive Him as Lord and as God. Are you tired of being double-minded and uncertain and lacking in peace? Hear the Lord call to you this morning. Let go of that trapeze you've been hanging on to and allow Him to catch you and to bless you with His life and His purposes. Live by faith that He is Lord and He is God and receive His blessings both now and forevermore. We can't conclude this story without looking at verse 29. After Thomas's confession, Jesus says to him, Because you have seen Me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Now as I read this, I'm thinking, well, well, He's talking about us. He's talking about how blessed we are because we don't see Him. We we can't literally touch Him. And and I believe that. But I also want to believe that in that moment that Thomas was blessed too. But here's where we maybe can learn from Thomas. Thomas spent eight days of double-mindedness, of doubt, of uncertainty, of struggling with what his dear friends had said, Jesus is alive and he wouldn't believe it and he struggled and you've been in that place where you just can't believe and you won't believe in the turmoil that's within. And oh, what would have happened if eight days earlier Thomas would have said, you know what guys, I believe. 
And some of us are living in those eight days. We refuse to believe. We refuse to hear the testimony of others. We refuse to hear the testimony of God's Word. And we're living in these eight days being tossed to and fro when if we would believe, the Spirit of God would come and nurture us and bring blessing to our lives. Oh, that we would experience this court of blessing. That we would grow and mature in that each and every day. You know, all of our lives are woven with this tapestry, this, these cords of faith and doubt. How will they be woven into your tapestry today? Will your doubt continue to put you on a downward spiral? Or will your doubt somehow in the hands of God, in the hands of one when you've let go of that trapeze, in the hands of God, bring you closer to Him and strengthen your faith? This morning we sing, Speak to my heart, Lord Jesus. Calm every doubt and fear. Bring peace and shalom.